0: Welcome to After Hours by Red Compass Labs, where the best and brightest of the financial services industry let their hair down, unbutton their collars, and share their passion for payments with Julie and Mike. I'm Mike Truter, an Evangelist for Digital Ecosystems and Innovation at Red Compass Labs, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague Julie Getter, who has a deep, deep passion for the future of payments. We learned a lot from our first season of podcasts and want to spice things up a little for our second season. For the most part, it will be Julie and Mike enjoying an after-hours chat about the future of payments. But when our crystal balls are telling us conflicting stories, we will invite guests onto the show to help us settle our differing points of view. As always, like the Scottish knife, the and do, we will try to keep our discussion short, sharp, and to the point, but I can't make any guarantees. So without any script or preparation, let's kick things off. Welcome everyone. This is season two of Red Compass Labs After Hours, and, uh, and Julie, I wondered if we should start today with a little bit of news. How about that?
1: Yeah, sure.
0: The so, fact
1: that I'm moving to Singapore, is that what you're I, referring to?
0: I, that's exactly what I'm referring to. Because mm-hmm. uh, So what are we doing, Julie? What are we, what, are we, what are we doing? What's the excitement from a Red Compass Labs perspective?
1: Yeah, so I think like what happened is like in the past, I think the future of payments or a window towards the future of payments used to be London. But things have changed. And I think like now it's not fully true anymore. So um, I'm relocating to Singapore, joining Mike, so that we can create what we call a center of innovation focused on the future of payments. And the idea is like to be completely embedded in Singapore, within the future of payment, understanding what are the next trend, what is coming towards Europe and the US and so on because we think that effectively this is where we see the most innovation happening all over the globe and reason for that is um, it's, I think a good mix between a regulators with pushing for innovation and also like fintechs very active in this area that are trying to leapfrog the current paradigm to create more financial inclusion, more innovative product, whether it's on Web 3.0 or DeFi, you know, leveraging crypto, looking at CBDC, pushing for actually multi-CBDCs. So everything is happening in Asia. So that's why we are both going to be in Asia, I guess.
0: Absolutely. The sun rises in the east and moves west. and. Uh... Innovation in payments does exactly the same from, from our perspective. And so, yes, from the end of March, we'll, we'll both be located here in Singapore and hopefully be able to talk about some of the, the exciting work we're doing with our partners in coming months as well. Very exciting. And I think, as Julie said, you know, a, a lot of our interest in thinking about the future as well is looking at the emergence of, you know, in the formal rails, CBDCs, the Central Bank Digital Currencies, but but maybe also you know we've been looking a little bit at the synthetic CBDCs or the synthetic uh, versions, including kind of commercial bank digital currencies. And and you know, of particular interest in this part of the world is is Partio to us. That's that's really forging a, a slightly different models. But you know we've got we've got some great work happening with the uh, Embridge project in Hong Kong and uh, Project Dunbar here on the CBDC front. So. I'm hoping that we can we can certainly be close to those and, and uh, looking in a little bit more detail.
1: I think to be fair, it's a bit beyond CBDC, right? And I think what is happening is like often people abuse the term CBDC. I think what we are interesting to explore is actually like how can the new technology be leveraged to create more efficient payment rails, whether it's Domestic are actually like cross-border. And I think because all of the or many domestic whales are now very efficient, the focus yeah, for, true, for right? basically this technology should be cross-border because this is the area where there are still a lot of pinpoint. And to be fair, when we say cross-border, I think it's cross-border content within an internal organization. So between several jurisdictions of a big bank, Or it could be, like, really going outside to the market and today leveraging a network of correspondents and maybe tomorrow, hopefully tomorrow, actually, leveraging...
0: Not next year, tomorrow, right?
1: Tomorrow, absolutely tomorrow. (laughs) And I think for some institutions, yesterday already, right? But these guys are more front-runners. So I think tomorrow, how do you effectively, like, you know, leverage this new technology? to remove the pain point that this network of correspondents is creating.
0: But but Julie, Julie, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out here. But what about Swift? Isn't Swift doing exactly that with their transaction manager and the move to ISO 20022? Is it GPI, they aren't they already completely changing the game? Isn't isn't that the the story that we, we have to tell?
1: I think in life you have like evolution and revolution. Um I think what Swift is doing is a great evolution. GPI is a great product. This was like you know more than required. The transparency that is bringing was required, and in this sense, I'm basically like thinking of understanding exactly where your payment is and where potentially stuck, knowing in advance the charges and so on. Um, but you know, like to be fair, discussing this with one sales rep few years ago, and now she was introducing GPI. You had GPI for packages for a very long time, right? Where you use Royal Mail or you use like, you know, um, DPS or Hermes, you're able to log into your the website and understand in where the package is. So I think like payments was a bit playing catch up when introducing GPI. So it's good to say that. Now, is it like revolutionary? Not yet. Maybe we'll see some revolutionary use case on top of this. I think at the moment, it's nice to see that, you know, banks have already built on top of GPI and allow their customers to have access to some of the data so that, like, you know, they could do things like manage their liquidity better and so on. Now, it's still relying on a network of correspondents. I think, again, transaction manager is trying to do things that, are really a pain point from the industry. So again, like being in a position where you can access the payment and the data from wherever you are in the chain and thinking of like, you know, the next five years, whether at some point the payment has been converted to an empty, then each participant will have still access to the MX format. And I think like it's, been, it's going to be interesting to um, also discover and understand a bit more the partner propositions that are going to be available on the uh, transaction manager platform, so Swift has already announced that they're you know going to launch some services for to validate the transaction in terms of fraud, AML and so on. so I, I, I think it will be nice, but like it's an evolution, it's not a revolution. I, 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 I
0: tend to agree, but I think, I think we have to accept. You know, the, world, the world's payment rails, effectively, the, the, the kind of the majority of the flows, definitely the cross-border flows, are, are using those rails today. And to transition suddenly to something else, when, when the entire ecosystem is effectively built around that, is, is extremely difficult, right? The, the formal ecosystem of, of the flows of money. So we have to realize that it, it's a transition. As, as revolutionary as, as ideas can be, Actually, we need to be careful with our with our economies, right? And and there's a reason for caution as we as we move to to different ways. But for me, it's fascinating. That's why we want to be, you know, in Asia as well, because we want to see this interplay and this transition. We know it's going to happen faster in certain jurisdictions than others, you know. Uh, and certainly, you know, one one of the things that I I'm always interested in, you know, we speak about leapfrogging, particularly happening in in the less developed countries where you know, they don't have as much, uh, let's say, very efficient payment rails or or, or platforms in place already. And, and, you know, we've seen that grow out of, you know, the the mobile money implementations that we see in in developing nations. You never see those, you know, in in Europe or or, or the UK or the US um, as such, but you see them in other nations where that infrastructure, the financial infrastructure, just doesn't exist in, in the same way to allow efficient flows of, 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 of money and, and where financial inclusion frankly is is at a different scale you know where where the where, where not enough people are, are yet on formal financial rails and so I think I think it's fascinating how this is going to play out as we move everyone on to you know the, the new global way that that's that's kind of emerging and and we want to be part of that I think I'm, yeah absolutely, absolutely. I'm super excited actually
1: uh, absolutely um, and I, I agree with you you know like I think for me you mentioned two key points. One is, yeah, it will take time for the industry to transition because I think, like, it's not only a change of technology, it's also a change of processes around this technology and therefore a change of mindset. So, what, like, you know, this platform are working on is a bit like collapsing a lot of different steps that used to be handled by different parties. So, that's why, like, you know, for me, the SWIFT is still like very much into messaging and, yes, like increasing orchestrating the validation, the right? orchestrating and making sure that there is more and more validation on the message, so that on the payment or message, so that effectively, like, you know, the chance of the message being processed rightly the first time without any manual intervention keeps increasing. But it doesn't do the settlement which effectively, yeah. like, you know, the new worlds are looking at doing as well. So all of this and mirroring this change in also a bank end-to-end payments architecture will take time as well, you know. And as we often discuss, if SEPA was like, you know, um, two centimeter big change, ISO is yeah. five, probably like, you know, migrating to DLT, on blockchain technology is probably like 20 centimeter wide, right? Because yeah. like yeah, it, like cha- it
0: changes everything, right? It fundamentally changes everything. And that, that, that kind of atomic um, transfer. You know, I, I think today we were saying, you know, things like Transaction Manager will really help with the orchestration and make sure the same data is there for all the participants in the transaction from end to end and give great transparency. But, but the reality is that, you know, if we look at what will happen in, in the DLT based, actually everything's pre-validated, right? So validation still happens, but it needs to happen upfront, so that when everything's ready and set, the transaction will settle, right? So effectively, your clearing comes in advance of, of initiation. Yeah. And at the point of initiation, you're doing your clearing checks and all and, your and AML checks and so on. Everything is cleared up front. And then, actually, the execution is really the last step, but but the most important step that settles uh, uh, yeah. across across the ledger, right? Um, and, and that ledger's trusted, and all parties can can kind of see the result instantly, which, which I think fundamentally changes it. And as you say, you know, it's it's a very different type of operation, particularly when you think of what back office, you know, a bank's back offices are doing today. You know, they they they're, they're managing a completely different process, and I I think this is always. Interesting for me to think about, you know, the difference between the, the kind of fintechs and the up-and-coming kind of players in the, in, in the DLT payment space. The way they operate is completely different, right? You, you look at the structure and size and how they're structured and operate. They need far fewer people to do far greater volumes. Let's not talk about transactions per second and, and other limitations of the technology itself. The, the entire structure of, of their kind of business process is completely transformed. You know and I think it's a very difficult transition for banks to make from from that one paradigm to to the new one but it has to happen.
1: But to your point um, as well like I think and this is what I also like you know wanted to echo a bit when you mentioned financial inclusion earlier. I think as we're seeing it now as well in the metaverse or mm-hmm. within the DAO communities where We are trying to create new world where effectively you design your own rule. This is also the change because this is not an evolution, but a revolution. This is a change to actually like change the rule and make sure that this time actually we include, you know, the 1.7 billion people who are currently excluded from the financial services industry, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, may- maybe if we touch on on financial inclusion a little bit, and-, and and we can talk about open loop and closed loop systems. Is there some other news that that we can we can tell our audience about? You know, something that that we've recently partnered up with that might be of interest. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know. So um, there have been like you know a press release being issued mentioning that effectively White Compass Labs and Mojaloop are now partnering. And yes, we are a partner for Mojalu going forward, which is super interesting.
0: Who is Mojalu, and what do they do? What's their, what's their mission? Because I think, I think this matters, because we've, we've got a mission, which is the open to the doors of finance to all coming back to the, the kind of financial inclusion, but, but also protect those who enter, right? So we really yeah. have a mission uh, at Red Compass Labs to, to make sure that finance is accessible to everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like on this front, so we totally share the mission of Mojaloop as well. And what they do is like they also try to increase financial inclusion by leveraging technology. And what they are working on is actually creating more interoperability between closed loop. So I would say that... So we explain closed loop? So so basically what happens is like when you go into like, you know, developing countries, often you have different systems that are not connected. So you would have mobile money provider, you would have banks, you would have people providing loans, and all of these systems are not talking to each other. And also you could be in the position where actually you want to send money to your brother or sister that are like, you know, living in a different country, also using mobile money. But because this is two different protocol, the system are not compatible. And you cannot effectively, like, reach your brother and sister in the other country. Actually, Mojaloop is trying to solve this issue and be in the position where regardless of what type of party you are, what type of protocol you're using, you'll be able to reach the other parties that you want to reach. And we thought that what they're trying to achieve is effectively something that is today missing missing, missing, like, you know, desperately. And we wanted to get involved because, yeah, we want to open the door of finance tools. So to be able to do that and make sure that more people can leverage financial services that are relevant for them, interoperability is one of the key issues. So that's why for us, like, partnering with mojelu totally makes sense.
0: Uh, Julie, you mentioned in developing countries, um, you know, having kind of separate silos of, of liquidity. But I think I think we see that actually. actually. It's, everywhere. it's 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 completely not developing countries, right? If you look at wallets, you know, closed loop wallet systems, right? So everyone wants that. I, I think I saw news this week, you know, that that most product developments, you know, from, from transaction banking are developing closed loop wallet systems. It's like, what why? Why are we why are we focusing so much on creating, you know, all these little different liquidity pots everywhere that make it confusing? So a, a consumer now has 20 apps on their phone with a little bit of cash in each one and nothing joining them together that that for me seems really counterintuitive and i i really worry about this point because you know there's only so much cash in the market if everyone's splitting it out into different places it's actually making it harder for people to spend that yes you're going to create little kind of closed sticky loops where people spend money in a little ecosystem but it it, it really kind of denies the, the kind of goal of making things work together and making it easy and simple. We spend so much time working on you know cross border payments, making them frictionless, making them secure, making it easy. Yet in our domestic markets, we're building solutions that make it harder for people to leave the ecosystem and pay the the person they want to. I, I find that a, a strange direction that the market seems to be taking.
1: Yeah, and I, I agree. To be, it's a bit strange, and and you're right. Uh, I said like you know developing country, but like uh, countries, but the use case is true for everywhere. It's just like if you think of the UK, for example, and I have pocket of money everywhere, right? As a Don't rev- we all. Don't we all? Of, of <laughs> like you know, um, Revolut user, Monzo user, you know, where you are, user, user, <laughs> you know, Coinbase user, you name it, right? And, I and all
0: our bank accounts of yeah, course yes, of <laughs> traditional course.
1: and i think i think where where it differs a bit depending on the jurisdiction is with open banking combined with faster payment here in the uk it's actually easy to move money from one pocket to another one when you go into developing country where like you know it's basically mobile network to traditional financial services industry like banks and so on, then this is not convenient. You don't have the option, actually. So I think for me, this is one of the main difference where I feel like, OK, yes, the use case is everywhere, but how much you feel the pain is actually different.
0: Yeah, so you, you mentioned that, you know, open banking. Open banking, I think, is, is fine, where, where it's the kind of traditional financial rails, right? So the non- non-bank financials, if they have access to those rails, and, and we know there are lots of steps, you know, to to, to try and do that and, and and give other payment service providers an opportunity to to, to leverage central bank money and, and so on. You know, and, and I've I've always been very encouraged by by some of the work that's been done here in, in Singapore with with opening up last year the PayNow, so that you can address a wallet as well. So wallets are all accessible on, on Grab and Liquid Pay and, and a few others. Um which I think is a great move, but again it's it's trapped in a single economy so that's that's fine if you're in Singapore, it's not so fine you know if you live in Malaysia and work in Singapore for instance, and you know need, need to move money literally on a daily basis because because of your travel needs or because of your family, maybe you know going to school in a different country or going to college somewhere else um which is really part of the modern reality today um and you've got this yeah. this whole mixture of different products people are using you for cheap FX I switch to that so I have to put something in that pot to to move money and then after, but you know you, you end up as a, as a as a consumer having to just keep moving your money everywhere to to fund all these little pots right it, and it, I guess it feels like a bit not archaic
1: yeah not only like you know the moving the money movement like you know is an issue it's also like because you have your pockets of money everywhere it's very hard sometimes to understand like actually, what is my financial health? How much money do I really have? You know, considering all the pocket of money I have everywhere, the buy now, pay later scheme, I have subscribed to and so on. So, so yeah, I think, like, you know, again, interoperability, being in the position when you have this 360 view, it's becoming a bit more and more critical. And as you mentioned, like, I think, strangely enough, with the pandemic i think that people will never be as mobile as before because now like you know the world of oh, working from home exists so you can be from one country live in another, in another and actually work in another one
0: yeah that's true, or that, work that's for- true that- yeah, there's a lot of people who've, who've decided to switch where they're working, right? You know, Correct. live in one country, work in another effectively as a teddy worker. So, yeah, it's an interesting use case. And we we'll, we'll definitely see that grow as we become global citizens, right? More than maybe ever before. I, I, I want to quickly bring you back. You know, we spoke about open banking, a great initiative, you know, designed to open up innovation and, and make marketplaces open and and, uh, and uh, promote an ecosystem perspective. but. You know, you mentioned financial health and well-being, and you know, when we think about financial health, it's much more than just pockets of money, right? It's pockets of savings or future savings, thinking about retirement plans or insurance policies and so on. And in this this world of, it's gone beyond open banking now. I think I think open finance is still still the term that that we keep keep looking looking towards happening. Where where are we on that journey?
1: Yeah, I think, like, it's a a bumpy journey, first of all, and it's a a journey which is, like, yeah, differently advanced based on where you are in the world as well, right? And it's interesting because, like, it took me some time to understand it. I think, like, open banking is great to understand your financial health to budget, And understand how much can I spend now and how much, like, can I spend a bit later. And understand, like, you know, your credit worthiness when you want to commit to bigger purchases like house and so on. But it doesn't help you on the long term to actually switch to a mindset where you're, like, I have a mortgage, what does that mean? Can I invest? So basically, it's, again, helping you to budget, not to invest. I think to be in the position where you want to invest really, you need open finance so that you really understand, okay, how much cash or liquidity as an individual do I have available to plan the future? And this is a completely change of mindset. So I think, like, it's different story per generation as well. We had, we have this discussion all the time, like on how sort of you and I apprehend money slightly differently, right, on this term and that how I think like, you know, culturally, maybe as a French person, as a woman as well, I was not like, really rest to invest. That this is where open finance for me and as an individual is also more so critical so that I can really see, okay, you have this insurance policy which is cost, costing you X. You get this out of the policy. Actually, maybe you should, you should switch to a different insurance policy. Same for, you know, health insurance and so on. So I think like open finance will help. The part that worries me a bit with open finance is how much of the decisioning will be based not on my transaction history, but on my social network.
0: Yeah. What's going to drive the AI, right? So this this is a completely different discussion. Yeah. Yeah. But this is
1: part of open finance. Open finance is is beyond the financial services industry. So open banking was very much, okay, current account and movement of money. Very much payments focused, right? absolutely where where yeah, it it could go beyond right so yeah
0: yeah because i think it's very different you know, show me my balance and let me initiate a payment you know these, these are, are simple things and you know, as as important as they are um, they are simple but it's it's completely different when we start to get into that world of understanding my financial health and being to tra- able to transact in in a different way and i think this is one of the other things that that fascinates me and i always think about this parallel now you know uh, you know we speak about, you know, often in terms of payments, we're looking at payment versus payment, right? When we think about cross-border, you know, you're buying one currency, you know, and selling another. There's always a payment versus payment effect, you know, uh, the transaction. But I think, I think we're getting to, you know, the, the, the starting to get to the delivery versus payment, right? It's another asset for the payment. As so, soon as you start buying stocks and shares, and we start to move into tokenized assets, and actually, it's all got to link up together, right? And that payment leg becomes part of a transaction that has meaning or context beyond just the movement of money from account A to account B. Actually, it's, it's that whole con- context of what am I getting for the movement of my money? Like, what, what's the purpose? And I, I, I think this is a kind of fascinating journey. And I think, I think because of the, the movements that we're seeing in, in kind of atomic swaps and exchanges that, that you know, the, the, for for different assets or different you know, representations of value, we, we're definitely moving to a different place, right? We, we're probably not there. You know, today we think, I, I know we've had this discussion before, you know, what do you keep in an account? Well, you keep a balance, right? What do you keep in a wallet? Well, you can keep all sorts of things, right? It doesn't have to be just cash. You can keep cards, you can keep, all sorts of other things, right? You know, if, if you wanted, you could keep your your bonds, <laughs> you know, or, or, or whatever your your paper, your paper stocks um, and 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 share certificates and so on in, in your wallet. And and it fascinates me as we go on this digital journey, you know, of how we move from just thinking about value in cash to value of all those assets and the whole health. And that that's where I see us going for the open finance. It's it's so much more than the traditional you know, value system, you know, the cash system that that we think about today.
1: I I agree. And I think like, you know, speaking and a bit coming back on financial inclusion, because Mm. it's so much more, it means that effectively, like, you know, the access is like um, even more limited than it is when you think of only access to debit account, access to credit and so on. Like, being in the position where you can access stock, you can access like, to some extent, crypto as well. Because like, and that's the thing, people think often that crypto are not regulated, that the gains they do on crypto, they don't need to declare it and so on. That is not true. So people trading crypto and not like, you know, declaring, please start now. Otherwise, you may get seriously in trouble from a tax perspective.
0: Yeah, Um, eyes wide open,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think, like, you know, on all of this is, yeah, let's think of access. And I do agree with you. And, and that's why we think payments being more and more central. Because it's not... The exchange of value could mean differencing. And the value, per se, could be represented by differencing. When in the past, it was mon- mainly, like, you know, money. And by then, I mean, I, I mean like, I guess, currencies provided by a state. Now it could be something else. It could be like, you know, two stocks being ch- exchanged, a stock versus an NFT, the stock versus a crypto. So you just need That's to...
0: A coin issued by a commercial bank, right? We go back to the old yes. days where companies used to, to write, if effectively, issue currency, right? I think, yes. yeah, I've, I've got, I remember my, you know, when I was, I was younger going to going to the, the museum and, um, you know, we, we, my family had donated some things to the museum, you know, from, from the company of old, whatever, the, the, the family the family company. And I remember being shown banknotes issued by the company, which just fascinated me. And I was like, what? Companies used to m- print their own money? Yes, they did, because it had value, right? That organization was able to, to kind of be valued and, and, and you know, promise to pay the bearer. <laughs> you know, currency and, and it fascinates me that we're moving back to that where a, a private entity can now, you know, can issue I- effectively something of value that, that people value because that company issued it, right? There's, there's that that it's trusted enough that the people can accept it.
1: Yeah, no, I, absolutely. But yeah. I, I think for me, like, you know, coming back to your liquidity trap point. Hmm. I think, unfortunately, this is kind of a a downside or an unintended consequences, maybe of fragmentation of like, you know, what value mean, of how, what is the best way to exchange these values and so on. Um, So, like, I wish I I could say, yes, we're going to solve the problem of liquidity trap. But I think at the moment, for a lot of use cases, this is not the priority. And often even ourselves when we get into discussion around next gen proposition and so on, okay, but what does that mean from a liquidity perspective? No, people like you know like are not targeted to, to that much at the moment. So I feel like the more fragmentation there will be, the more liquidity traps unfortunately you you may need to face.
0: Well, and the more need for interoperability to bring them all together, right? So bring Correct. the closed, you know. Make make the closed loops open loop by, by putting something over the top, which I think is is absolutely critical, right? Because it it's it unsustainable. I think in the in the long term we have to figure out how to make the ecosystem open.
1: Yeah, you need this bridge. You need basically capability to, like you said, like move this liquidity from one pod to another twenty four seven, definitely. Yeah. And also, like I think you need good tool that allow you to understand like what is your position at a given moment? And so that's step one, I would say, and step two is almost prediction. So helping you to actually optimize all these liquidity traps would be a dream come true, right? So,
0: OK, I'm, I'm going to kind of pick up on a point, you know, know your position. That's great. So when, when you're you know, working in, in a, you know, a dealing room in a bank, you know, they're professionals at managing positions, right? Traders yeah. in, a, in an investment bank, they manage a position. But we're talking about the man on the street here. Right? Does the man on the street really think about managing their position? Isn't it a bit of a foreign concept, right? You know, the, the person who has a market stall you know, goes to the market early in the morning, buys their goods, brings it to their market stall, sells it, gets cash, goes back the next morning.
1: I think it's also more so important to understand what is your position, actually, because the cash-to-conversion is quicker. The, the cash conversion cycle is quicker. So what happened is, like, yeah, you're right, the man on the street has, like, I don't know, X amount of, like, you know, dollar in his pocket today, right? And what he wants is, like, understand, okay, how many customers do I get on average? And, like, should I actually find a way to have $12 so that I can buy more supplies, so that then I can serve more customers. So, yeah, I think actually like optimization of uh, your position and understanding it is key regardless of who you are. And I don't know, you know, sure. as a, and, and this is true very early on, I think. You're a yeah. child, you're on pocket money, you want to understand your position so that you can buy this next toy that you really want, right? It, it, it comes very early on, right? It's just like, and again, as a, think of, like, think of us when we were a child and we were on pocket money, right? We would get one single bank account that like, you know. Well, I, I had
0: a piggy bank, right? So literally with I, a hole in the I top, right? I had one
1: as well, actually. I had one well, as well. I had a piggy bank. You,
0: you you have your piggy bank, you put your cash in, you know how much, you, you turn it upside down, you open the bottom and you count the coins, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And if I take, if I see my kids now, they already have several bank accounts because, okay, we are very nice parents, saving for them already, <laughs> but still, like, you know, so they get like a Revolut pot where grandparents can chip in. They got um, UK account as well, Aniza Jr., because, like, obviously, you can get like uh, your money can yield nicely based on the rate that you can get and so on. They got like, you know, they get stars on Rooster yeah. in the past when they do like, you know, like nice chores and kids so on. kids Rooster,
0: you know, make their beds, they get like, you know, they might, if they finish all their chores, they get their pocket money on Saturday, right?
1: Absolutely. And so then, ag- again, we yeah. see the fragmentation. So for our kids to be like, hey, I want this new buzz or like, I don't know, things from Toy Story movie for my children well, how much money do you have? Well, let me check my Revolute, my basically traditional <laughs> bank in the UK, my Wooster and then I come back to you and tell you. So that's why like knowing your position is, is true regardless of like which market yeah. you're looking at, which segment of the market.
0: And then you need to know your, your total, right? And if you have, if, if the thing you want to buy is more than you have in pot A, B and C, then you have to combine them all into one pot. You've got to pick which pot, right? Move everything to that one and that that's where the fun comes in. This is where the friction, um, you know, people don't want you to leave the pot. No. Yeah, and that, that, that's the, 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 the kind of trick here. Oh, it's fascinating discussion. And I, I, love, I love the fact that we've gotten to, to talking about piggy banks. My goodness, that brings back memories.
1: <laughs> and, you know, like, I think, Mike, to your point, like, obviously, right now, my, I have young children. So, like, time, although they are very impatient... Time is not that critical, right? But I'm oh, thinking yeah. of them being like, you know, teens and so on, where they want to buy this NFT and the, the, the market is closing. This is where aggregating your pocket of money in nanosecond is critical because otherwise you lose the deal, right?
0: You missed your chance. Yeah, It's a bit different. And, and things will happen in real time, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it, um, that, that's that's also the the, the flip side of, of the way things work. Actually, everything needs to be in real time. You, know, you can't wait to understand what your position will be. Actually, I think you're quite right. You need to know your position at every point in time. You know, in the old days, you had position keeping systems on, on the trading floors I worked on. Um, you know, which even if the money hasn't settled, everyone knows what they've traded, or what they've agreed to. They understand all their obligations to understand exactly exactly what their position is, right? Even if, even if they're things that are in process and, 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 and not finalized yet. So I, it fascinates me to think about how things will work when, when actually everything is instant, where, where the transaction can be settled you know, instantaneously. You know, it's, it's amazing in, in, in the, the kind of um, distributed ledger world or the, the, the kind of new, new uh, settlement rails, whatever we want to call them, crypto rails, everyone understands their position instantly. Because the blockchain is always up to date, right? Yeah it's always the ledger, the trusted ledger that they can see what's transacted, what hasn't, right? They know what hasn't transacted. And, and and there's no question. Whereas, you know, in in the traditional world today that's running our system, people guess where their position is, right? You bank a check, you're not sure when it's gonna clear. Yes, maybe it shows as an uncleared balance, but you know, it's it's potentially untouchable until that time. It, it, it's changing so much that, you know, you can only, you know, it, it's, it's going to come to that point where you can only spend what's really in your wallet or what you really have in, in something.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, like, you know, the concept as well of smart contract and conditional money will be key as well. And I think, like, honestly, there is situation in my day-to-day life where I cannot wait for this to happen. And we are discussing it with, like, one parent's friend, as well, of, like, because yeah. um, in the UK, you know, you need to register your kids to after school. Most parents do because schools stop at, like, 3.30, and for working parents, it's impossible to get, like, you know, on time to pick up your child. So they introduced <laughs> this concept of after-school club. The issue is, like, the after-school club are always oversubscribed. So as soon as the portal opens, you need to be here, you need to click and you need to pay right away, right? To basically like book your child. And to be fair, often you may be there because your system is slow. Like you, it's already fully subscribed. At the moment, you can reach the yes, subscribe button and pay button. Imagine It's like, it's like this buying tickets
0: for a Queen concert or uh, absolutely, you know, whatever. Exactly, absolutely like, whatever. Um,
1: <laughs> you need to be on the case. But imagine... Oh,
0: or whatever, you, you've got to be there waiting, right? When it opens, go, 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 go.
1: At the yeah. moment, imagine this with a smart contract. All of a sudden, you don't need to be like clicking like crazy. Your program, you set your everything up. You're
0: yeah. ready before it starts. And, uh, you know, when the gate opens, it automatically executes. Wow. But then, how does how does ordering work in that situation, right? Because it still has to, to work through one at a time, right? So is it going to be random? Oh, there's a whole, there's a whole heap of different problems to think about when, when you get there, right?
1: Absolutely. But like, you know, I know we are starting to run out of time, so I just want to say, and it's after hours, so cheers to the moment where smart contracts will become part of our day-to-day life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, at least conditional payments. I, 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 I listened. Yeah. I listened to a great podcast this morning, actually hosted by the Stellar Development Foundation, and actually there was a little bit of a discussion on, on um, where smart contracts need to be, or if we have to use smart contracts at all and, and it was it, it got me thinking i think i think there's there's definitely something i want to think about where is it on the network is it on the node is it you know, there's, there's actually quite a few choices as well about how how programmability is introduced uh into into money but it was really interesting they said that two key aspects when we think about cbdc's and, and payment rails of the future two key design aspects one is interoperability we spoke about right the fact everything has to be open you know, as a fundamental design principle. Because building a closed system makes no sense in an ecosystem world, you know, where, where open networks are what is key. And I, I fundamentally believe that's important, right? I think it drives everything. As soon as we start to, to, to kind of put walls around things, it, it, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And, and sustainability is going to be affected, right? So I think, I think that's really important. But the second one was programmability. And, you know, I I really like that. You know, the the two things we need to think about, there are lots, but it has to be interoperable, it has to be programmable, because that matters in future, right? And, you know, programmability always worries me. Conditional payments, you know, I I remember going to a session back in, I think, 2015 already, or early 2016, speaking about blockchain at that time. And and a a big part of the discussion was, you know, somebody getting their, you know, their monthly allowance from the government because they're unemployed or like a fuel allowance, you know, to, 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 buy, to buy gas. And they can only spend it on buying gas, right? They can't buy lottery tickets. They can't, you know, that, and, and that concept worries me. I remember the ethical challenges just thinking it through at that time. But I think it's really interesting for us to think through actually how it's used and, and the ethical, you know, points that are around it that have to be thought through, you know, especially when we think about well, t- difficult topic, but, you know, not everyone likes comp- somebody else telling them what to do. You know, not everyone likes their government telling them what to do. You know, and in, in different parts of the world, we know, you know, different levels of acceptability of um, levels of privacy, levels of um, choice, you know, are, are predominant in, in certain you know, um, cultures and and, and countries. And I I think the programmability really is going to be very interesting to watch when we see kind of different types of regime implementing it in different ways to control behavior. And what, you know, when, when we think about it, we think of a very simple example, controlling inflation, right? Which is, which is a problem today, you know, and, and how programmability might be used as as an inflationary control, as a monetary policy control, you know, to, to to help to help the economy as a whole. But but yeah, I think so many difficult policy choices ahead for for central banks, you know, trying not to upset accept uh, the populists, right? Who who going to accept? I, I I know this is a bit unfair, but you know, we we've spoken before about you know how how sometimes in France people react. Uh, in in certain ways to edicts from the government you know it's it's a little bit different yeah sometimes but it's it's, it's lovely as well to to kind of see that that protest and so on and yeah programmability double-edged sword I think if we don't think it through carefully
1: yeah a lot to be said on this for sure
0: it's huge it's a topic it's a massive topic in itself right
1: yeah Maybe one for one of our next podcasts.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we should invite someone on who can talk about specifically this. I, I think JP Morgan um, already have, have something. You know, they've, they've been speaking recently about their, their programmable kind of uh, options for, for corporate treasury, if I remember correctly. Uh, that might be yeah. one. Maybe, maybe we, should, uh, we should see who we can find to, to come and speak with us. But I, I think it's a fascinating topic and, and fascinating if we think, yeah, wider. Not, not just the, the use case for... Or corporate treasury but, but for whole economies yeah definitely great great suggestion it's been a wonderful chat we've been all over the place I hope the format works and I hope it works for, for people listening but I do look forward to having someone else you know joining us to, to kind of interject as well so that's not all the Mike and Julie show but it's been wonderful talking I, I think definitely I can't wait until you're here in, in Singapore Julie and then then we can be in the same room and do this um, but, uh, but also hopefully talk a little bit more in future about what we're doing the kind of programs that we're involved in and what we're seeing in the market making the future of payments happen because we keep saying this we, we don't want to be talking about the future we want to be making it happen we want to be practical strategists right think about it and then figure out how to deliver it as well because yeah just, just thinking about it is is pointless right we've got to be
1: absolutely like the all the like uh, fan parties to get your hands dirty isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Roll up our sleeves and get, get involved, right? That's, that's it. That's, that's the most fun, I think, when we do it that way.
1: Thank you, Mike, for this fascinating discussion. We really like it.
0: No, thank you. It's always a pleasure, Julie. Always a pleasure. At Red Compass Labs, we exist to help open the doors of finance to all and to protect those who enter. I hope today's discussion sheds some light for you on the fascinating future of payments that is unfolding all around us. We really appreciate the support of our audience. So if you've enjoyed this discussion, please show your support by giving us a thumbs up, hitting subscribe and clicking on the bell to get notified when new content arrives in future. Also, don't be shy about giving us feedback. We really appreciate your comments and suggestions for topics and guests. That's all for this time, catch you on the flip side.